Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. With me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, September 14th. The primaries are all but over. School and football have kicked off, and many of our TVs are jammed with campaign ads. The fall election season is truly upon us. So today, we'll discuss where both parties stand in the fights for the White House and Capitol Hill, and then break down an ad airing in Battleground, North Carolina. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. But up first is Jerose Gem. Jerose Gem, my number of the week is 86. That's the number of state legislative chambers that are holding elections on November the 3rd. That represents the vast majority of the 99 state legislative chambers in this country. 49 states have bicameral bodies, and Nebraska has a single unicameral legislature. All told, there are 5,876 state legislative seats up for regularly scheduled elections November the 3rd, representing about 80% of the total seats. That's according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. Republicans still dominate Democrats in control of state legislative chambers, so they have more to lose in this election. Democrats are trying to overturn Republican majorities in one or both chambers in states including Arizona, Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Texas. Most of those states are also closely contested in the presidential election. In Texas, a shift of nine seats would give Democrats the majority in the state house. In North Carolina, Democrats are seeking gains of six seats in the state house and five in the state Senate for majorities. The results of the state legislative elections are important not only because those state legislative bodies shape policy in their states, but also because in most states, whoever controls the legislature will have a seat at the table for that politically important process of redrawing congressional and state legislative district lines starting in 2021. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your Giro's Gem of the Week. All right, up next, we're going to fly around the competitive map. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. We are seven weeks from Election Day. Here's where things stand. Real clear politics has Joe Biden leading President Trump by seven and a half points in national polling. That includes a Fox News poll released Sunday that had Biden up five overall and leading on every issue except the economy. Biden also led every state poll release that I saw uh, in Arizona, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Nevada, New Hampshire. The Cook Political Report rates six Senate seats as pure toss-ups and gives both parties the edge, as of now, in one pickup opportunity, Alabama for Republicans and Arizona for Democrats. And in the House, Cook has 28 races rated as toss-ups, 16 held by Democrats, 12 by Republicans, while four Republican-held seats are rated as likely pickups for the Democrats. So overall, Democrats appear to be in position to win the White House. They have a real chance at taking the Senate, and they're all but certain to hold the House. Still, Greg, I don't get the sense they're overly confident. Do you? Yeah, I agree they're not overly confident because they they simply can't be. The election is in... 50 days and not in five days or five hours. And a you know political party like the Democrats who are favored to win in a number of races still uh, needs to do the hard work to translate its polling advantages in theory uh, into political victories in practice. And the Democrats still have some significant advantages in this election. There's a long way to go. And I think some Democrats may be a little bit still spooked from 2016 when they expected to win the presidential election. And they also lost a couple of Senate races they expected to win in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. 
there's a, I think, a widespread presumption that the presidential race is going to tighten, which is going to help, which would help Republicans. Though Biden's lead over Trump has been pretty much the same for the last couple of months. Uh, maybe the presidential election gets closer, but maybe it doesn't. Uh, Democrats are hoping for the latter, of course, because it would brighten their prospects to win back the Senate and also help them hold the House, maybe even pick up you know, a handful of seats there. You know, I think that uh, you know, political candidates always like to say that you should run like you're behind rather than you're ahead. And I suspect the Democrats are thinking that now. Yeah, that's right. And, and so let's get into that a little bit, because um, I want to I game out the Senate. So if Democrats pick up Arizona, that's where Mark Kelly, the retired astronaut, is leading Senator Martha McSally, the Republican, by more than eight points uh, in the RCP average. Um, so if he wins that one and then Republicans pick up Alabama, where Democratic Senator Doug Jones faces uh, former Auburn football coach Tommy Tuberville, um, those will cancel each other out. Right. And so then Democrats still need to pick up three or four more seats to take the majority. Um, the six most likely states for that path to run through um, are Colorado against Cory Gardner, Georgia against David Perdue, Iowa against Joni Ernst, Maine against Susan Collins, Montana against Steve Daines, uh, and then North Carolina against Tom Tillis. So, you know, that's an interesting mix of states when you consider their recent presidential voting histories. Um, plus, all of them, except Susan Collins, are in their first terms, um, which is usually when you're you're most vulnerable. Um, so, but which of those Republican senators do you think is best positioned to hold on? That's a good question. I mean, I think you know the Cook Cookville report, as you noted, rates all of them in the same category. I do think there are some kind of gradations of competitiveness within that category. Um, I think of the six, you know, I think the toughest one maybe for the the Democrats to flip, maybe Montana. Um, just in the sense that that's a state that voted for the president by 20 points. Uh, it certainly won't vote for Trump by 20 points again, at least I don't think it will. Most uh, surveys in Montana have the president's lead, about half that, maybe even the, in the single digits now. Um, and the Democrats have a very good candidate, the outgoing two-term governor, Steve Bullock, who's, I think, basically the only Democrat who could win that uh, win that race against Republican incumbent Steve Daines. But um, early polling, I think, polling has pretty much had that within the margin of error. Um, if I had to push that race, I'd push it a little bit towards Danes at the moment. Um, so I think if I had to kind of rate those six, um, none of them are going to be easy retentions for Republicans, but maybe Montana out of the six, if only because, you know, the, um, you know, some other, some other states in that list there are a very, very tough holds for the Republicans. Yeah. And I think that's probably the one that Trump can count on winning, right? I mean, even Georgia, that and Arizona feel like the next two states Democrats uh, are going to pick up that they haven't won recent in recent presidential elections. Um, now, David Perdue ended up winning by eight points when uh, in 2014, when a lot of us thought that was going to be a close race. Um, but of course, 2014 was a great year nationally for Republicans. Um, things don't look that great for Republicans right now, um, but we'll see how that turns out. Um, all right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the House. It was all the rage in 2018, but is it isn't nearly as sexy this cycle since we don't see much chance for Republicans to pick up the dozen and a half seats they need to win back the majority. Um, still, there's probably some members of that huge Democratic freshman class um, who probably won't be back next year. Um, and then there are some more Republican held seats in suburban areas that Democrats just missed out on last time. Um, but doesn't look like they will this time. Um, is there a race or two that stand out as you know just really interesting ones to watch for you? I think for me, Kyle, the races I'm watching pretty closely are those uh, Democratic freshmen from districts that Trump won handily 
in 2016. You know, I'm talking about members like Kendra Horn in Oklahoma's 5th District in Oklahoma City, Zochi Torres-Small from rural New Mexico's 2nd Congressional District, and Joe Cunningham from coastal South Carolina's 1st District, Ben McAdams from uh, Utah's 4th District. I think, you know, those are those are members that are I'm, I'm going to be watching very closely. It's been very interesting to watch kind of their strategies as they seek re-election in districts that the president may well win again. Um, a lot of these Democratic incumbents, freshman Democrats running for re-election, have not hesitated to put some political daylight between themselves and the National Party touting votes that they took that put them at odds with Speaker Pelosi or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or other uh, prominent liberals in the Democratic caucus. So I think watching those first-term Trump district Democrats are, uh, I think, like Kendra Horn, like Zochi Torres-Small, are uh, members I'm watching very closely. Yeah, and on the other side of that, I you know, there's several seats in Texas that Democrats feel like they really should have won last time. Republicans um, are either retiring from a few of those seats um, or are fighting to hold on. And that's, you know, in districts outside Austin and Houston. Um, Texas is a really interesting state to watch uh, this year on multiple levels. Um, now, how the presidential race turns out will likely have an outsized effect on a lot of those races uh, for Congress. Um, it definitely will in state legislative races as well, um, where name ID is much lower uh, in those races. So folks often vote for the same party. But one position we do see voters more likely to vote for the other party than the one they belong to is in governor's races. Um, you know, you have a pair of two-term Republican governors in Maryland and Massachusetts, which are about as blue as you get in this country. Um, there aren't that many governor's races this cycle. Uh, most states hold them in midterms, but there are a few races to watch this year, right, Greg? There are, yeah. And it's pretty fascinating, as you mentioned, why um, you have a number of governors who are of different political parties uh, than, say, the presidential candidates who carry their states. You mentioned you know, Massachusetts and Maryland. It'd be interesting to see if actually more governor's races were held in presidential election years to see if that uh, see if that pattern would change, if at all. And I think that governors can you know, kind of separate themselves from the national party, not only by physical distance, they're in their state capitals, they don't have to take votes in Washington. Um, I think that's one reason why they've been able to maybe personalize their races in a way that I think it's more difficult for House and Senate members and we're seeing that many House and Senate races are voting, or, or the districts and the states at least are voting the same way uh, as the uh, the presidential elections in those constituencies. But there are some governor's races worth watching, a uh, few of them of the 11 that are on the ballot this year. Uh, Montana, Steve Bullock, as I mentioned earlier, is not seeking re-election because of term limits. He's running for the Senate. And uh, his lieutenant governor, Mike Cooney, is running against Republican Congressman Greg Gianforte. North Carolina, you have the Democratic governor there, Roy Cooper, running against the Republican Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest. And those, I think those are the two, the biggest ones worth watching. I'm also keeping an eye on Missouri and New Hampshire, but I think that Montana and North Carolina are the governor's races to watch this year. All right, up next, we're heading to North Carolina. Cal Cunningham says he's for North Carolina, but he's just another liberal politician. Cunningham promised not to raise taxes, but voted for a billion-dollar tax hike. Now, Cunningham's propped up by National Democrats. They know Cunningham supports changing the rules so they can jam through their government-run health care scheme. That could force hospitals to close. Cal Cunningham, typical liberal politician who won't stand up for us. That was an ad from American Crossroads, a Republican super PAC aligned with the Senate Majority Leader that goes after the Democratic challenger to Senator Tom Tillis in North Carolina. Greg, what'd you hear? Well, we see some imagery of 
Cal Cunningham, with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, with Nancy Pelosi, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden. Now, AOC, Pelosi, and Sanders are staples of Republican ads opposing Democrat candidates, but we haven't seen a lot of anti-Biden ads in the most competitive House and Senate races, at least not yet. Uh, the ad does raise the specter of Democrats abolishing the filibuster if they win control. It says that Cunningham is propped up by national Democrats who know he will support changing the rules so they can jam through their government-run health care scheme, to quote the ad specifically. Now, Cal Cunningham ran for the Senate before in 2010 when he called for ending the filibuster in its current form. A decade later, as he runs uh, in 2020, he said that the Senate should reform the filibuster rule. But Republicans and their allied super PACs are brandishing that decade-ago statement he made in his first Senate race when he kind of called more explicitly for ending the filibuster in its current form. Uh, the ad also refers to tax and fee increases Cunningham voted for a decade ago when he was in the state legislature that he said uh, were needed to stabilize state finances. And look for these issues, Kyle, to surface in the first Tillis-Cunningham debate, which is tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern as we speak on Monday morning, September the 14th. All right, that'll be a fun one. All right, before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. This is Down Ballot Counts. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, our listeners, with a political trivia question. Let's first review the question from two weeks ago and the answer. My question was, prior to Representative Richard Neal, the veteran Massachusetts Democrat who defeated a primary challenger on September the 1st, who was the last Democrat to serve as chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee? In a Bloomberg government Twitter poll, I gave you the choices of Pete Stark, Dan Rostenkowski, Charlie Rangel, and Sandy Levin. Kyle, let's see if you got this correct once again. I'm pretty sure it's Charlie Rangel. Hope I'm right. Okay, well, that's a very good answer, but it's technically not correct because Charlie oh. Rangel had to step down from that position in 2010, and Sandy Levin assumed the position uh, because Rangel had some ethics issues that he had to step down from. He had to give up the chairmanship because of that. Republicans won control of the House that November of 2010 and held the chairmanship of that committee and all the others until January of 2019 when Democrats won back control and Neil became chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. And now for this week's question. When was the last presidential election year in which control of the Senate changed in partisan control? Again, give me the last presidential election year when the Senate changed in partisan control. You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. We will post the question this week as a Twitter poll with four choices. I will give the answer and ask a new question on the next episode of Down Ballot Counts. All right, that's it for us today. Before we go, Greg, what else are you watching this week? Tuesday is Delaware's primary, and that's the last state to hold a regular primary election before the November 3rd general election. Louisiana's unusual blanket primary is also on November the 3rd. And September the 20th is the deadline for the National Party Committees and many super PACs to disclose their donors and spending for the month of August. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg Government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstead and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.bgov.com. We will talk to you next week. Taxes and accounting are complicated, but finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu, and I'm Amanda Icone. 
Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from what Congress is working on, to legal rulings, to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.